You are listening to Gone But Never Forgotten. Our topics can include, but are not limited to, murder, sexual assault, graphic and gruesome details, and more. These topics are adult in nature and are not meant for everyone. Listener discretion is advised. I think that we have covered on this podcast very well that criminals come in all shapes and sizes. One thing that does seem to come up fairly often, especially when it comes to killers, is the fact that many of them have higher than average IQs. This week we're going to look at a man who had a good life, had a heck of a lot of brains, and then seemingly after what appears to be years of researching and learning about murder and death, he randomly pulled up alongside a perfect stranger and took his life. What's more is that the world that was unraveled by investigators was weird and elaborate. This was a man who seemingly had planned to kill for a long time, even though he seemingly did not plan out the circumstances nor the victim. Hello, my name is Lance, and welcome to episode 103 of Gone But Never Forgotten. Just Because He Could, The Murder of Yancey Knoll by Din Bowman. It was in the early evening hours of August 31st of 2012 when Yancey Noel would pack up and leave his job to head home for the day. He started along his usual route, heading on Interstate 5, and at some point along his drive home he came across a man who was in a beautiful BMW driving alongside him. Nancy would have had no idea, based on all of the evidence, that in just a matter of moments, his life would be taken by someone inside of that BMW that he had never even come into contact with before. He came to a stop in his weathered and beaten Subaru at a red light after getting off of the interstate, and likely before he even knew what was happening, it was over. Since it was broad daylight in the early evening, there were plenty of people around to describe later to the police that they had heard five shots fired in a steady pop, 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 pop fashion. And then witnesses said that the next thing that they saw was a vehicle go speeding through the intersection against the red light directly through oncoming traffic. Two witnesses, Kevin Watts and Angelo Rama, actually tried to follow after the speeding sports car, which they said went from 0 to 60 in about 3 seconds, as it caught air at the top of a hill 
and sped off into the distance. When they gave up on the chase, realizing that they had no chance of catching the BMW, they returned to the lights, and that's when they came across the Subaru that was still at the curb at the intersection with its motor running. The friends quickly realized that the pops that they had heard were likely gunshots, as they saw the amount of blood at the scene, and then those fears were confirmed when they saw the bullet holes and the aftermath of everything that they had just heard. When the two men arrived at the vehicle, they knew that there was nothing more that could be done. It was evident that Yancey Knoll had passed away, and investigators would say that it was likely an instant death for Yancey. A small measure of peace of mind for a family who had just lost a lovely and loving member. Yancey Knoll was a 42-year-old man who loved the outdoors, and he was a happy-go-lucky kind of man, who brought lightness and laughter into the room every time that he arrived. Yancey had been born in California and raised in Alaska. However, he had moved to Seattle, Washington in the 1980s and had planted his roots there. He had most of his close family and friends living nearby, and he worked as a wine steward or sommelier at Quality Food Center store in Seattle. In his spare time, Yancey loved to climb mountains with his girlfriend and his dog. He was also said to have a humongous heart, and he volunteered for Habitat for Humanity, and he also taught children how to rock climb. It always seems that it's these kinds of people that wind up being in the wrong place at the wrong time, unfortunately. These killer types can never find one of their own, and another murderer instead of finding an innocent victim on the streets. Investigators were unable to immediately lay any charges or even have a lead because the vehicle that the shots had been fired from was long gone and nobody was able to tail it. So, the first step was to attempt to find out if Yancey had any enemies or people in his life who may be out to get him, or if he had a history of being involved with the wrong people. As it turned out, as I just said, what they found was that Yancey was a stand-up gentleman, seemingly in every area of his life. What the investigators didn't notice immediately was that five bullets seemed to have been fired with near pinpoint accuracy, with four of the bullets striking Yancey in the head, including the temple. One stray bullet, though, had missed everything, and very nearly even claimed a second victim. Patricia Schulmeister's home was right beside the altercation, and she said that the fifth bullet came through the fence, through the plain glass window, hit her lampshade inside of the house, finally hitting a photo, and dropping to the floor. Patricia would take the bullet to the investigators, and they had their first lead. The bullet was fired from a 9mm Glock pistol. One of the things that the investigators would notice while inspecting the scene was that the shooter had very clearly shot his bullets through the passenger side window of his own vehicle, not taking the time to either get out of the car or roll down a window. 
This would become a key piece of evidence in the case, and it was certainly strange to investigators. There would be more eyewitness testimony, though, that would certainly help police on so many levels. The two men who had followed the shooter for a while had remembered a lot about the vehicle and the man that they had seen behind the wheel. Angelo would say that he believed that it was an M4, a BMW make, and he also said that the car that had fled the scene after the shots had been fired was a silver M4, and at that, a convertible. The vehicle was also driving with its top down. Angelo also remembered that the car had really nice new rims on it. They were so nice that they had stood out to him even in the situation. Because of Angelo's description, police were able to put out an all-points bulletin and also tell the public to be on the lookout for an M3 or an M4 with a broken passenger side window. Kevin Watts was able to remember the man's face very clearly that he had seen go speeding by. He sat down with a sketch artist and within a week they were able to come out with a rendering of what the shooter looked like. So, they had a rough estimation on the vehicle and they had a well-done sketch of the shooter. All over Seattle, police were pulling over silver BMWs to check side windows and drivers, hoping that they would find a man who looked like the sketch that they had. Unfortunately, there seemed to be a lot of silver BMWs on the road, and no matches to be made to the dark-haired shooter that they were looking for. The break in this case would come in on a telephone tip line. A woman called in and she provided the name of a man that she believed looked a lot like the man in the artist's sketch of the suspect. The man's name was Din Bowman, and he lived within 10 blocks of the crime scene. When investigators looked into the man that she had named, they realized that this man was a dead ringer for the sketch that they had from the eyewitness. When they saw what Din looked like, and they saw that the hair color and the style matched and the age matched the description that they had, they knew they were on to something. However, investigators were immediately taken aback at the man that they were looking at, and surely figured that there must be some kind of coincidence that Din looked like the suspect in a murder case. Din was an engineer, and he was brilliant. He had started college at the age of 12, and then in his 20s he had created, opened, and ran his own business, a boutique engineering company called Vag Industries. His specialization was in robotics. In 2007, Din would meet a woman named Jennifer Palm, who was herself incredibly successful. She was a dentist, and she was making roughly $250,000 a year in salary. The two met at a seminar, and they would date and get married just one year later. Friends saw the pair as a power couple, smart, wealthy, and very loving towards one another. As investigators looked deeper, however, they realized that there was more that Din had in common with their suspect. Din had at least previously owned a BMW, but what they needed to know is whether Din still owned that BMW, 
or if he had perhaps done something with it really recently. So, the investigators needing more evidence than a look-alike decided that they would surveil Din and Jennifer's home to see if they could find out if the BMW was still there. That surveillance went on for over a week and they didn't see any sign of the car coming, going, or sitting on the property. And then they managed to get their big break. The garage door opened slightly for someone to leave the house, and when they did, the investigators managed to get a fleeting look at a silver sports car inside of the garage. That was enough information for the investigators to get a search warrant. On September 21st, three weeks after Yancey's murder, before dawn, investigators would approach Din and Jennifer as they were heading out of the house for work. Din Bowman was placed under arrest and told that he was being taken to the police station for questioning. Once Din was placed into a room for interviewing, he started to get agitated when the police didn't seem to be working on his preferred time schedule. Din would eat snacks and drink a cup of coffee while he waited for his investigation, but then he starts to complain that his time is worth money and that his time is being wasted waiting on investigators. One of the reasons that Din was left to wait was because Jennifer had told investigators that she would cooperate with them and answer questions, so they were trying to find out what they could from her. Largely, that would, though, amount to nothing. Jennifer, from the very beginning, was the kind of person who seemed willing to answer every single question she was asked with variations of, I'm not sure. Jennifer would be interviewed for four hours. Another reason that Din was left to wait was because investigators were working over the BMW that was in the garage. The first thing investigators noticed was that there were still tiny shards of glass on the passenger side of the vehicle, and the window itself had already been replaced. The garage itself also had the distinct smell of paint, and it was discovered that the reason for that was because someone had painted the silver rims that belonged to the BMW black. When investigators entered the home, they were shocked when they found that Din and Jennifer largely lived a minimalist lifestyle. There was not a lot of furniture. Inside the kitchen, investigators, though, would find little love notes that were written on post-it notes. Most of the messages were just well wishes or cute comments for a smile, but one of the notes had something really interesting written on it. Quote, Happy birthday to the best shooter in the Wild West. Bang, bang. Love, love. XO, XO. Unquote. As the house was searched further, they found that there were a lot of weapons and a lot of ammunition inside of the home. The only thing they couldn't find was the 9mm Glock that they knew had been used to shoot Yancey. At this point, detectives went to speak to Din, who of course told officers that he wanted to speak to a lawyer before he would speak to them. At that point, Din was told that he was going to be charged with murder. 
Din would in fact be charged with the murder of Yancey Knoll, and when his bail was set, the price tag was a paltry $10 million. Din was not going to be getting out on bail. While in custody, Din was always seemingly stoic. He didn't seem to be showing any fear or any regret or remorse for the fact that he had allegedly killed another man. However, as we all know, phone calls in prison are all recorded, and as such, people get to see a little more of the real person, so to speak, that they're dealing with through those. In this case, it emerged that Din and Jennifer had a very interesting, we'll say, and quirky relationship. When the two spoke, they spoke to one another using baby talk, and they addressed one another with pet names, the two key ones being Bunny, which was Din, and Snuggles, which was Jennifer. Investigators were certainly taken aback with the seemingly childish ways of the marriage because as they looked more into Din, they realized that there was a much more dark and sinister side to him that really didn't jive. In all, it seemed that there really was three different sides, at least, to Din. Din had been searching researching, and downloading seemingly everything that he could about death and about murder and about how to get away with murder for years. And his computer was filled with all of this information. Din also had what many would say was an unhealthy obsession with James Bond. That carried over to Din's love to fire weapons and drive fast cars. Videos that were found on Din's computer showed that he was actually an expert marksman with both his right and left hands. And then, investigators would find one of the most haunting things on that computer. It was a training video about how to shoot a gun, and it was done by an expert. The video was a training video on how to shoot through glass, and one of the exact quotes was, quote, I've come into a situation where I feel threatened by someone off to my passenger side, unquote. The video essentially showed investigators exactly what had happened to Yancey. While Jennifer herself wound up not being willing to answer questions as she had said that she would, she did hand her purse over to investigators and they were able to piece together a trip that the two had taken to Portland, where they had the window of the car replaced the day after the murder. The unfortunate part for Jennifer seemed to be that perhaps Din should have shown her how to cover her trails after he watched his videos. Jennifer would tell officers that their car window was broken in Portland while they were having lunch at a particular restaurant. Officers found inside of the purse a receipt that showed that Jennifer and Din had indeed gone to the restaurant. However, it was after the window was fixed and the meal was at dinner time. Police would also find out that Din had gone to purchase a cheap set of tires for his BMW because police had started to broadcast that they had tire tracks from the vehicle at the scene of the crime. Din had set out to change the tires put the new rims, which were painted black, on the car 
and then he had stored the expensive, nearly new BMW tires at his work. Investigators believe that they would be able to get Din on a charge of first-degree murder. On November 19th of 2014, nearly 27 months after Yancey Knoll had his life tragically taken away in the blink of an eye, Din would walk into court to face that very first-degree murder charge. Only Din wasn't looking quite like the young man that he had looked like every step of the way before this. He didn't look stoic, he didn't look hard-tested, and he didn't look like a man who had studied how to get away with murder. Or, I suppose, perhaps he did. Din walked into that courtroom looking clean-cut, a massive change to the hair that had been a hallmark of why the anonymous tip pinpointed him, and he looked flat out like a teenaged boy. Innocence was clearly the impression that his clean face and young look was meant to express. How could such a smart and handsome young man have taken the life of Yancey Noel? The prosecution, however, would mince no words, and they would not be struck by the change to Din's visage. Adrienne McCoy, the prosecutor, would start the trial by informing the jury and everyone watching on that this was not your typical murder case. This was not a murder that happened because of greed, or that happened because of jealousy, or anything like that. Yancey's life was taken away because Din wanted to fulfill a quest, and that quest was to see what it felt like to shoot and kill someone. When the videos and the long-saved research on everything to do with death was brought up in court, the defense team said Din was actually trying to create a library on his computer of essentially everything. They tried to say that his computer was essentially being built into an encyclopedia. If that was the case, I would hate to see how thick his book would have been on death or murder. I should also mention that the defense lawyer that took Din's case is no stranger to murder cases. John Henry Brown had once served as a defense member for Ted Bundy. The big story in this case, however, would be that Brown would take a massive chance, and he put Din on the stand to testify. What we got was indeed quite the tale. It would come down to whether you wanted to believe the friends and family of Yancey, who said that he would never hurt a fly, drove like a senior, and loved everyone, or if you wanted to believe the man that pulled the trigger and took his life. Din would say that if he had not shot at Yancey, he was going to be killed. He said that on the interstate he had accidentally cut Yancey off and that Yancey had lost his mind. Din said that there was a lot of yelling and there was a lot of swearing and that he remembered Yancey saying something along the lines of, quote, You better learn how to drive that fancy car, dick boy, or you're going to get yourself fucked up, unquote. He said that when Yancey said that to him, he had pointed his fingers at him like a gun. 
He then said that Yancey had tailgated him off the interstate and that when he stopped at the red light, Yancey threw a bottle of wine at him and it hit him right in the head. Din said that at this point, Yancey was screaming, yelling, and his eyes were bulging because he was so angry. He said that he had only seen that level of road rage in the movies and he didn't know that it was possible to be real like that. Din said that he feared for his life and believed that Yancey may have a gun, and so he pulled his 9mm Glock out and fired five shots at Yancey. Din would go on to say that he didn't mean to kill Yancey, which in of itself is insane when you consider that he was an expert marksman, and he had hit Yancey with four of five bullets with pinpoint accuracy. Din said that he had realized what he had done, he dropped the gun, and hammered the gas pedal to get away. Brown would tell the court that road rage was not premeditation. Din said that he then went home and threw out all of the evidence and fixed his car. Instead of going to the police... Since he was saying that he was in fact the victim here, he destroyed all the evidence that would prove what he was saying to be true. Din said that he did that because he simply believed that the police would not ever believe his story. Do we ever get tired of hearing this old song and dance? You get somebody up on the stand and try to have them sell some kind of gray area to get themselves out or get themselves down to lesser charges, and the only explanation for all of the stupid things that they did is, I didn't think anyone would believe me. It's pathetic. This man was in college at 12, and I am to believe that he just decided to destroy the evidence and move on with his life because nobody would believe his story? I'm sorry. The zest and the seeming joy on his face when he relived this load of crap in court made me sick. I guess it goes to show that even if you read all there is to read and your IQ is through the roof, common sense can be lacking anywhere that you look. Din was on the stand for three days being blasted by questions and comments from the prosecution because they knew that if Din kept talking, all of his lies would be clear, and it would be clear as day to the jury, and it seemed that they were to everyone but Din and Jennifer, it would seem. Twenty days after court began on Din Bowman's 32nd birthday, Court would adjourn, and jurors started their deliberations. A recorded call between Din and Jennifer, who shockingly did not attend a single day of Din's trial, showed that Din and Jennifer believed that the jury should take less than a day to return and find him not guilty. Din even told Jennifer that the jury would have to be completely irrational to believe anything except for the story that he had told. Well, I guess the jury was irrational. On the third day of deliberations, the jury returned, and they announced that they had found Din Bowman guilty of first-degree murder. In court, Din allegedly kept saying, I can't believe it. I can't believe it. I can't believe it. 
And then came the dog and pony show that was the sentencing hearing only three weeks later. At the hearing, Din's parents pleaded with the judge to have mercy on their son, and they said that they believed that it was their fault that he had done all of the things that he had done. Din's mother even went as far as to plead with the judge to let her son be free, and she would serve his time for him. Those are touching sentiments from a family who, too, was about to lose their son, but thankfully, that is not how the judicial system works. Then, it was Din's chance to speak. Again, only this time, most of the people in the courtroom, friends and family of Yancey, refused to listen to Din, and even went as far as to put their fingers into their ears so they didn't have to hear the words that he had to say. If you were Din and about to receive your sentence, do you figure that asking for mercy or showing some kind of remorse might be important at this point? Well, not for Din. The first words out of Din's mouth were, quote, I'm disappointed that the jury didn't believe me, unquote. The judge would hand down a sentence of 29 years and one month, which was just slightly less than the maximum sentence that Din was eligible to receive. Din is now serving his sentence at the Clallam Bay Correction Center in Washington. And so, we close another harrowing case. These are definitely the cases that bother Julie the most because she cannot stand to hear what we hear too often. An innocent person is out doing innocent things, and they wind up crossing paths with a monster. Din Bowman did it to Yancey Knoll, and it has been done numerous times before, and it numerous times since. All we can hope is that somehow the world starts to change from a place that's filled with hate and crime and murder to something at least slightly less macabre. Thank you for listening to another episode with me, and I look forward to talking to you again next week. In the meantime, let's do what we can to ensure that we are part of the cure and not the disease. Be happy, be helpful, and be better. See you next week.